Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Food insecurity was among the many problems exacerbated by the pandemic in 2020. Ahead this hour, conversations with people working to end hunger in our state. And a young man who's surely a source of pride in West Hartford. He was season eight's runner-up on Food Network's Kids Baking Championship. Later in the hour, we talk with two organizers of the first community fridge in Middletown. You may be inspired to start your own fridge. But first... Perhaps no one knows more about food insecurity in our state than our guest, Jason Jakubowski. Jason is the president and CEO of the Connecticut Food Bank and Food Share, which provides nearly 40 million meals each year through a network of more than 700 community-based hunger relief programs, like food pantries, community kitchens, and emergency shelters. The organization is a member of the National Feeding America Network. Jason, thanks so much for joining us on Seasoned. Absolutely. No, great to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. We often talk about food insecurity, and I wonder if you could describe exactly what food insecurity is. The textbook definition of food insecurity is not knowing where your next meal is coming from. And uh, in even normal times, I mean, there's a lot of people across the country, and particularly here in the state of Connecticut, that struggle with food insecurity. What we have seen, unfortunately, is that there's been about a 32% increase in that since the beginning of the, the COVID pandemic. And again, it's not related necessarily to the virus itself, it's to the economic impact regarding the virus. So when you think about it, in total, here in the state of Connecticut, the richest state in the country, there's 545,000 people who are food insecure, uh, meaning they don't know where their next meal is coming from. It's a, it's a heartbreaking number. And that, according to our research, is one in seven adults yep. and one in four children. Absolutely. Yep. And you were saying that that was an issue even before COVID. Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, you, you, were, you were dealing in, 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 again, what I would call normal times were probably about 350,000 people in a state like Connecticut that were food insecure. That number has definitely jumped up. The 545,000 is taking the pandemic into account. And we've seen it. I mean, we see it every day when we're out there on the, uh, when, when we're out there at our mobile sites or at any of our local pantries, the increase has been uh, incredible. We've been at Rentschler Field since the beginning of April doing food, emergency food distribution. And we did a poll. We have a, we have an Institute for Hunger Research and Solutions that went out and actually did a, uh, a survey of the cars that were driving through Rentschler Field they found that 74% of them had never used our service, one of our services before. That was mind blowing because what it told us was that these are people who had never experienced food insecurity. And now all of a sudden, due to no fault of their own, uh, have found themselves in this uh, very difficult situation. So that's the impact. There's so many families that are just one paycheck away from being food insecure. It's sad, but it is reality, even here in Connecticut. Jason, it's just heart-wrenching for me to hear the stories of even just thinking about kids not being able to eat and just the, the toll yep. it takes on me just thinking about it and trying to do everything you can to possibly help. But I got to imagine for you, is it hard to separate the emotional part from, hey, we are trying to make a, you know, make this happen? I, I learned a long time ago, it, it's, uh, I don't need to separate the, the emotional part from it. That's, that's a part of it. That's a part of, of what we do. I mean, yes, 
being the, the CEO of Food Share at Connecticut Food Bank, yeah, that's, you know, when you look on the IRS forms, that is my job, that is my occupation. But I also live here. I mean, I'm from Connecticut. I've lived here my whole life. Even my wife and I are raising our children here. I don't think we should separate the emotion from it. Yeah. I what I often say is like when I go to those big distributions, whether it's at Rensselaer Field or or down in Norwalk or Norwich, where you've got the thousands of cars lined up. I have found that they are equal parts depressing and uplifting, certainly depressing because, again, the idea that that is the reality here in in 2021 in the richest state in the union is just is just unfathomable, but uplifting because I have seen firsthand the goodness of the community out there and just how resilient the Connecticut community is. Those distributions are mostly volunteer efforts. It's incredible. We have about 30 volunteers a day at each one of those sites, and they've been there through cold weather last uh, April, uh, through 100-degree days, uh, through pouring rain, and then through snow and, and ice over the last couple of months. That part to me is uplifting because I realize that the community has really come together. And it's not just the individuals volunteering, it's the individuals that have donated to us. I often say the good news is we've never raised more money than we have over the last 10 months. The bad news is we've never spent more money over the last 10 months, but the people of Connecticut keep stepping up to the plate and they keep helping us out. That makes me feel good inside. Is there one story in particular that you can think of when you've been out in the field, whether it's a volunteer or one of the, you know, thousands of families that were coming for the first time? Is there one that stuck with you? There are so many of them. I mean, Terry is a volunteer at Rensselaer Field and she has been there every day except one uh, since April. She is a warrior, but there's so many other examples like her. The stories that I, I think you know pull at your heartstrings are the people that drive through the lines with a sign that says, thank you, or a little child in the back that says, thank you. People will give us cards. People will make posters for us that we, that we hang up. The story that you hear most often, it sounds generic, but the truth is it's what you hear over and over again is, hey, I was gainfully employed. I had a five or six figure a year job. I never thought I'd be in this situation. And now due to no fault of my own, the rug was pulled out from under me. And, you know, I have to utilize the service. We've had people come up to us and, and say, you know, I was a longtime donor to, to food share and Connecticut Food Bank. I never thought I'd have to use this service. We've had people come up to us and say, we're sorry. We're just, we're sorry we have to, to do this. We're sorry we have to use this service. Wow. And we tell them, first of all, don't be sorry. This is our job. This is, this is what we do. And, you know, there's brighter days ahead. So those are, I wish I could tell those as just like one isolated story. You hear them over and over again. You really do. And it's heartbreaking. So what does it mean? People come to Rensselaer Field, they can just show up. Yep. And what exactly do they get? It changes every day, but it's, it ends up being about 30 pounds of food. It depends upon, obviously, what we have available. The federal government has provided boxes of food that we've been distributing there, but we also supplement it with, um, you know, there's, there's always some produce, uh, staples like potatoes, uh, onions, carrots, apples, oranges. There's always, uh, we try to have some dairy product, whether it's cheese or yogurt or milk. Milk is definitely very popular. We try to get a protein in there. And again, that's largely based on availability, but we've had chicken. We've had beef is the hardest thing to come by, but we've had chicken, we've had pork. And then every day since we've, we've been there, um, the Pepperidge Farms, which is right around the corner from our warehouse in, uh, in, in Bloomfield, uh, has been donating bread. So everybody's driving out of there with, with some Pepperidge Farms bread. 
and the process is really, you know, yes, you, you show up. These are no questions asked distributions. And I know I've had some people say, well, you don't check IDs, you don't run social security numbers. No, we're in the middle of, a, of an emergency here. We're in the middle of a, of a nightmare, quite frankly, for our, uh, our community and, and for the state of Connecticut. We trust that if you're willing to spend an hour in line waiting for food, that you need that food. There's a lot of people that wouldn't come if you did have to, to sign up and fill out a form. In trying to understand food insecurity, it's important to note that the problem isn't that we don't have enough food. In one of the earlier days of COVID, I did a uh, virtual town hall with uh, Congresswoman DeLauro. She started it off by like looking in the camera and saying point blank, there is plenty of food in America for everybody who needs it. The issue is not necessarily supply, it's how fast and how are we able to get it out to individuals. Even after the run on grocery stores that we saw last March, which was unlike anything I've ever seen in, in my life, we still were able to sustain the, the food distribution universe. I can tell you in May and June of last year, our supplies got low, but they certainly never hit zero. So there is enough food out there. The question is how, how are we getting it to food banks and how are we getting it to to pantries and to individuals? The other piece of this, of course, is, I mean, there is a public policy component to it. Food banking and what we do, we are not the first line of defense against hunger. We should not be the first line of defense against hunger. SNAP is the first line of defense against hunger. And for those of us who don't know what SNAP yeah, tell us what SNAP is. It's the, it's, the, it's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or for those of us that were born in the 70s, uh, 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 what we grew up with is called food stamps. Yeah. And uh, it's a federal program that's administered by each individual state. And the hard thing was during most of this pandemic, we had been dealing with uh, four years of, of an attack on the SNAP program. Mm -hmm. The previous administration in Washington you know, did basically everything they could in order to try to get as many people off of SNAP as, as possible and to restrict the funding as much as possible, which is unfortunate because SNAP allows people to buy their own food. It allows people the dignity of choosing their own food, and it allows uh, the grocery industry to be able to benefit from all of that. Believe me, putting food in somebody's trunk is not our preferred way of distributing food at all. So we're very happy that over the last several weeks, there's been a, a major change in SNAP policies. We're hoping that we have a commitment uh, from Washington in, in the years ahead to increase that SNAP benefit for people. Because for every meal we can produce at a food bank, SNAP can provide 12. Wow. Yeah. So as you look at that trickle-down effect, mm -hmm. what does food insecurity or hunger, and I know they're, they're two different things, but... Yeah. How does that impact everyday lives? How is it that we can live in the wealthiest state in the country? By the way, I'm going to double check that. And it's well, we're but we're, we're definitely we're definitely top five. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We're definitely top five. But how can we be living in one of the wealthiest states in the country yet face this alarming rate of hunger and food insecurity? That is the paradox of Connecticut. You know, again, as I'm born and raised here, I've lived here my entire life. I went to the University of Connecticut. I, I love Connecticut, but that is the paradox that we exist in. I go to some national conferences sometimes and people say, oh, you're from the food bank in Connecticut. What, oh, did you guys run out of caviar or something? Or you're all on your yachts and everything. The reality is there are definitely, there are pockets of great wealth here in the state of Connecticut. Some of the richest zip codes in the entire United States are right here in Connecticut. 
Some of the poorest zip codes in the entire United States are right here in the state of Connecticut. It's an interesting dichotomy. You look at a place like Hartford, there are million dollar mansions in the city of Hartford. There are also some of the poorest zip codes in the entire country, all within the same municipality. Hunger doesn't care what, what zip code you live in. Hunger doesn't care what town you live in. We serve people in all 169 towns. There is not one town in Connecticut that is not affected by food insecurity. There's definitely a misnomer out there that, oh, there's no food insecurity in Greenwich or Darien or Avon or Simsbury. We have trucks that go out there. We have pantries that we serve out there. Uh, hunger affects every town in Connecticut. So I imagine this time last year where the world was like, wow, we're, we're, in, we're in for it. You did what you needed to do. And as you look back now to this very same time this year, what has changed? You know, last March at our staff meeting, I was like, oh, yeah, there's, there's this virus thing that they're talking about in the news and we're keeping an eye on it. And we'll let you know, you know, we might have to take a couple of days off of work. Well, that's the longest couple of days that we've ever had in, in our lives. Really different stages. Last March, we were responding to an acute crisis. We literally had to change the way that we did things overnight. We like it when people are able to pick their own food. Obviously, we couldn't do that. We used to have big crowds at our mobile sites. We had to enforce social distancing. So we literally changed and we literally reinvented what we did overnight. That was the crisis mode. Then towards the summer became kind of the stability mode. Okay, we're still in a crisis, but it's not as acute as it was at the beginning. Now we are at what I call the beginning stages of recovery mode. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're hopefully, you know, knock on wood at a point where in the next couple of months, we'll be able to have all of our employees back here at work and then prepare for the new normal. The one caution that I give everybody though, is that there definitely is this misnomer that once that once the biological virus has been solved, you know, a, a switch will flip and the whole world will go back to being normal. You know, it'll be like in the Wizard of Oz, you know, everything will go back to being black and white. That's not going to happen. In fact, we know that the economic lag from this virus, unfortunately, is going to probably last 12 to 18 months after the virus itself is solved. So I know that everybody's going to be excited. Everybody's going to want to be partying in the streets and popping champagne and, and everything. That's not everybody, though. And we've got to remember that there's a lot of our neighbors that are still going to be hurting for a while. Jason, what do you think is some of the biggest or what was the biggest challenge the organization itself you know, faced meeting the needs for food insecurity the past year? Two things. One is obviously financial. We've never spent this much money. We're very grateful that people have donated money. But, you know, in a typical year, we would spend $350,000 on food because so much of it was donated. Right. In the first three months of COVID last year, we spent $1.2 million. Wow. Adjusting to that was, was difficult. The other thing I would say is the uncertainty. There really was, and, and, you know, I think we all could relate to this in terms of our own lives. At one point last March and April, you really were taking things one day at a time, one week at a time. You know, we would create a system for something and then the next week some parameter would change or some CDC guidance would change. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, no, now we've got to go back to this and now we've got to go. And, and then you don't want to project too far out because, you know, th this thing was constantly evolving. Sometimes it got better and sometimes it got worse. But to me, that was that's the thing that I will not miss about this past year is just how one week was never the same as, as the week before or the week after. Did it ever feel like these food banks were competing with each other almost to like get hmm. food, just to have enough food in this food bank versus this food bank? 
in terms of camaraderie and spirit, certainly not. I mean, we're all we're all trying to meet the the same goal there. Uh, Feeding America, uh, which is a national organization that that most food banks belong to, has very strict rules. Every feed, food bank only has one territory. You can't encroach upon somebody else's territory. You know, you can distribute food only in those territories. So, that, I never see it as a competition there. Where it was a competition, especially when those when those grocery shelves were bare. And when our donations from grocery stores plummeted down to zero in March and April, where it was absolutely a competition was that basically the food wholesale food industry had food banks bidding against each other. Wow. We kept driving, everybody kept driving up the cost because everybody was looking to purchase the same amount of food. We paid $70,000 for a trailer load of tuna fish. We have never paid $70,000 for a trailer load of tuna fish before. That is so gross to me. I'm sorry. I know I'm supposed to be an objective journalist, but that <laughs> is, is awful. So so how did you make it through that? This is why we are very fortunate. Two things. First of all, as a food bank, our board of directors had been planning for years. Uh, you know, some nonprofits go, you know, make it paycheck to paycheck. We always had a rainy day fund just in case of, of a situation like this. You know, we could survive if we never got another penny. We probably could. We could have survived nine months. That was that gave us some 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 uh, some pause. The second thing, and the thing that we didn't expect, was the outpouring of support that we got from the uh, from the community. You know, we go out and do our turkey drives at Thanksgiving, and we have our walk against hunger usually in in May, and we're always asking for sponsorships. Never before did I have corporations calling us. The foundations calling us the Dalio Family Foundation, 4CT, Bank of America. You know, if I start naming them all, I'm going to start getting in trouble because I'm going to name. I'm, I'm going to forget somebody. The, the, ne- the, the Neag Foundation, and then of course, Feeding America in and of itself. They all stepped up, but most importantly, individuals stepped up. People who had never contributed to us before had said, "You know what? I've got an extra hundred dollars. You need it more than we do." So we were only able to do it because of uh, the generosity of, of, of people here in, in Connecticut. For listeners who hear you talk about you know, the food bank's mission and all the work you do, and they really, they really want to help, what can they do? I mean, clearly, financial is obviously a huge help, but you know, not everybody can be financially helpful. Yep. They want to help some other way. What can they do? There's two things people can do. They can make a financial donation or they can volunteer and we need them both. You can go to, to ctfoodbank.org uh, or you could go to foodshare.org and both of those sites, you can either sign up to volunteer or make a donation. That is what we need. If you want to collect cans of food, we encourage you to donate those to your local food pantry. If you want to, to collect uh, monetary funds, you can donate them here to the to the food bank. We have a tremendous purchasing power. We'd be happy to to, uh, to add those uh, oh, those to our coffers. Minusol, does it just feel better knowing that guys like Jason are in our state? <laughs> 100%. That's very kind. But keep in mind, I'm the one talking to you here today, but it's not me. I've got an army of people behind me. We have 110 employees and uh, we have thousands of volunteers out there in, in the community. Uh, it's them. I'm just the one that gets to talk with cool people like yourself. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, we appreciate all the good work you're doing out there. It's really admirable and makes me want to go do more. So thank you for everything. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on, guys. I I really appreciate it. That was Jason Jakubowski, president and CEO of Connecticut Food Bank and Food Share. Later in the hour, a conversation with the West Hartford middle schooler whose baking earned him a spot on a Food Network competition. I'm Marisol Castro.
And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, members of the Middletown community start the town's first free fridge. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. On the cover of Time Magazine this week, a determined-looking woman in Albany, New York, standing next to a painted fridge with the words, free food, comida gratis, on it. The fridge is one of seven community fridges Jamila Anderson started in her community. You can start a community fridge, too. Our next guests are Maya Gomberg and Kirk Hart. They are two of the organizers of Middletown's first community fridge, a project of the Middletown Mutual Aid Collective. We started there with what the collective is and does. The Middletown Mutual Aid Collective is really just people helping people. We have all these different types of needs. We have housing, food, medical, emotional, social. And we as a community believe that we can meet them ourselves. And the Middletown Mutual Aid Collective was formed at the beginning of the pandemic. We're rounding on a year now, which is a little bit wild. But we know that all of the needs that we have pre-existed the pandemic and will exist long after this pandemic is over. Um, They were exacerbated for sure. A lot more people are unemployed. A lot more people have need of rental assistance and all this other stuff. But we anticipate that the Middletown Mutual Aid Collective is going to be around for a very long time. Um, So we are just doing our best to build community and making sure that we know each other because when you know people well, you're going to help them out. A couple of awesome things that the Middletown Mutual Aid Collective has been up to right near the beginning, we started off with a direct cash assistance program. And today we have raised over $60,000 in grassroots donations and distributed it to Middletown residents, which is really exciting and more than a lot of sort of state mandated programs have given out during the pandemic. So we've seen a lot of success in that, but we are also still fundraising. There's a lot of need and a lot of solidarity needed to, to get people all of the things they need, because one of the essential things about mutual aid is that we believe that everyone deserves everything they need every single person. So we were working on the direct cash assistance program. We were working on just getting to know each other, building that community. We were also realizing that there was a lot of need for food, which is how we got to the community fridge. Proud Wesleyan grad here, but uh, this is a, <laughs> this is not just a Wesleyan program, correct? This is Wesleyan is in an actual town, Middletown, for those, <laughs> those of you who don't know. Um, and so Kirk, you don't go to Wesleyan, but you are actively involved in this. So tell us tell us how this came to be and what it's like for the Middletown community. Well, I am consistently Wesleyan adjacent because of <laughs> being a lifetime Middletown county. But how the, the fridge itself came to be was the collective was getting started and going in every different direction, trying to get our hands in a little bit of everything. And one of the things that got focused in on was the sort of deficit of places to get fresh food if you're in certain neighborhoods and wanting the quickest and most effective way to combat that. The fridge was thrown out, it gained traction, and it was a lot of details, but it served the community very well. Maya, you you are a Wesleyan student, right? 
I'm a Wesleyan student. I'm a junior right now. Um, so I only moved to Middletown a couple years ago um, when I started going to Wesleyan. But I would say the, the majority of people working on the fridge, even in an organizing capacity on Zoom calls and talking to each other, the majority of people are not Wesleyan students. There are a number of us who have realized that this is really important. This is an expressed need from community members. And so many of us are putting our, our labor towards it, trying to make sure that it succeeds. But it's very much a sort of homegrown Middletown endeavor that Wesleyan students are just supporting as they can. And the only thing that I would add about the origin of the fridge is that we were really lucky to get to do some of the distributions of sort of the farms to family food boxes. And those take a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of resources. And so we started thinking about what is the best way uh, for us to get people food. Farm to families is amazing, and I would never say a negative word about it, but I think that there, there are more things to think about. And, you know, Middletown is really lucky. We have a soup kitchen, a food bank. There are food services in Middletown. So we were thinking, what, what is it that's keeping people from food? As much as we love soup kitchens and food banks, they're only open some of the time, and often only some people can get food there. Maybe at 4 p.m. they're open, but if you're hungry at 8 p.m. at night, there really isn't anywhere that you can go for food. Additionally, like there's not as much variety. You don't get to choose. And that's something that we also noticed about food boxes that people really didn't get to choose what they wanted. So we were giving the same thing to everyone when, you know, some people don't eat certain types of food or really like a certain thing. And so we were thinking, okay, how is it that we, as a relatively small collective, can make sure that people get to choose what they want, have healthy food, nearby. And the other thing that I think really connects the community fridge to the idea of mutual aid and meeting each other's needs is really the difference between sort of solidarity work versus charity work. You often see with, you know, soup kitchens, an amazing, amazing thing that's really necessary. It's kind of a one-way valve. You have some people who help out at the soup kitchen or are able to, to donate either time or actual food. And then you have other people, totally separate often, who receive food. And we're trying to sort of get rid of those barriers and, and get rid of that distinction between someone who can give and someone who can take. Because we really have this idea that everyone has something to give and everyone has something to receive. It's not about charity. It's about like knowing that, you know, everyone being fed is going to be better for everyone. So maybe I'm able to get groceries and bring them to the fridge and someone else is able to pitch in 20 bucks and someone else who might take from the fridge also is able to wash the fridge or tell their friends and do some outreach for the fridge. So really understanding the way that this is a community endeavor. This is not just like some people organizing a way to get people food. It's everyone organizing to get themselves food. How'd you get involved in doing this? Like what all of a sudden clicked and said, oh, I want to do the community fridge. Like how does that happen in your brain? Honestly, because we started in coronavirus time, it was sort of a thing of I had just graduated. I was in town. I was looking to do something that meant something. And this group appeared. Sort of the more I, the more I gave, the more I felt my own capacity grow. Then I, at some point, had these things that I had taken on responsibility for. Then they had the hooks in me. <laughs> I see Maya laughing. She's like, oh, Kirk, 
let's rope you into this. I think that this work is really timely. I believe that people generally want to help each other and they often don't know how to do it, right? You don't know what it is that you can do to just like tangibly make a difference in someone else's life. This is really just giving them a platform to do that. Taking the natural goodwill and ability of people. Everyone has different types of abilities, right? Like I can knit you a hat and you can make me something yummy and like, we'll trade that, right? Everyone has different abilities. And so this is giving a platform for for that exchange of a conversation, a meal, whatever it is. I'm looking at a picture. It's in the Wesleyan Argus and it is a, looks like a refrigerator that you bought somewhere. It's under stairs with a big blue sign, free food with a little star and a green squiggly. And inside, I mean, I see basmati rice, clementines. I see all sorts of really fantastic food. So who's powering the fridge? Where do those stairs lead? And how do you know when there's enough food in there? The fridge is housed. The stairs where it is, is this the outside of a community health center building that they very graciously let us use because it did need to be stored on private property based on regulations and all that. So shout out to CHC for really being an ally and sort of a silent partner in all of this. And how does the food get in there? And how do you know when there is enough food? How do you replenish it? Every day, constantly, the fridge is empty. And we try within ourselves to send somebody to fill it. But that's not to say that it isn't also full every day, right? The fridge is always empty and it is always full because as soon as you get there, you know, I got there this morning with some awesome donations from Big Y, right? And I came with like loaves of bread and lots of pastries and I put it in the fridge. And by the time that I left, half of it was gone. The fridge being empty means that people are using the fridge, right? And that's really exciting. And that's a good thing. And the one other thing just to explain a little bit is that, you know, the the government, um, as much as they would like to say that they are supportive of, of this endeavor, have a lot of lawyers who are very worried about liability all the time. So even though Connecticut actually has really strong food liability, Good Samaritan laws, basically, they really did not want it on public property. So we have been doing our best and have a space that's outside. It's really important to us that it's outside so that no doors lock so that people are unable to get the food at night. And so it has been successful thus far. Maya, can you talk just a little bit about how the process works? Does someone need to sign up to use it? Can it just be anybody who could come grab things out the fridge? How does that work? Yeah, I, I always think this is a really funny question because people always say, what do you do if people steal food? And I say, there is literally no way they could steal food, right? It is a free fridge that anyone can take from at any time and anyone can put food into. It is accessible all the time. We don't keep track of who takes. The idea is you take what you need and you leave what you can. Like those old penny dishes in the, in the, in the gas station. Take a penny if you need a penny, leave a penny kind of situation. <laughs> now it makes sense, Minus. I'll see. I just got to put it in layman's terms for myself. And now mm-hmm. I get it. Yeah, but Kirk, do you want to talk a little bit about our like processes of, of actually getting food to the fridge? And Yeah, I guess since tomorrow would be my day anyway, I'll walk through what I plan to do tomorrow. First go grocery shopping. I'm finally staying within budget. And I have the items from all these that I've learned. The community responds well to them, which means it goes fast. I do that shopping, come to the fridge, clean it, and then restock it. And 
we have a group signal and I just send everybody the details of like, oh, this showed up and then wait, because then tomorrow will be somebody else's day. There are like four main things that keep our fridge full. The amazing like Venmo campaign that we have going of like really trying to get grassroots donations and having people sort of every day there to check on the fridge. And if it's not full, which it often isn't, go and and go grocery shopping. We also are working with community partners to try to get more grocery stores to give us excess food. Grocery stores often take things off the shelves before their shelf date just because they want everything to be fresh. So we actually get a lot of food waste. Um, and so we are sort of trying to work in through net- existing networks of food waste management and through some food banks of getting donations from those stores so that we have a consistent supply of free and healthy food. And particularly trying to get more of that from places in Middletown. The idea of the community supporting itself, a lot of local restaurants and grocery stores, or at least owned locally, are really interested, or at least were when we first pitched the idea. So we're, we're always trying to get more folks to commit to weekly donations, um, because that's really a big way for community fridges to sustain themselves. And then beyond that, it really is community contributions. And we're seeing a lot of that happening as well. You don't notice it as much because it's, you know, a can of beans, a couple boxes of pasta, or, you know, a couple extra bell peppers when you go to the store. Definitely a lot of just sort of the community supporting each other, which is the point. What advice would you guys give to other communities who want to start doing something like this, who want to start having a community fridge in their town or in their in their little hamlet? Plan redundancies for everything because things break down things never go as planned and you got to do a lot of rolling with the punches and improv i think it's so important that we were formed out of an existing mutual aid network and we already had a big network of support and by big i mean like 25 people i don't i don't mean like we have half the town doing this work i'm i'm saying you know I never feel like I'm the only one who could help the fridge at any given moment. I always have people to say, hey, could you pick up from this address? They have some extra groceries this week. And so having a really big network of support has probably been the biggest thing. And and sort of related to the advice to other cities or towns, we are actually really excited. Uh, Bridgeport just launched its free fridge. Um, They're calling it Fridgeport, which I love. I'm a sucker for a good pun. Um, But Bridgeport is, and there are a number of other communities that are interested in starting fridges. And honestly, that's the one, one of the most helpful things you can do for us. Creating your own fridge in your own community is a really important facet of what mutual aid work looks like. And you doing it over there means that, you know, A, you're building more community, you're building more solidarity. We're working towards the same goal of everyone being able to keep everyone safe and fed and healthy. And also, I, as I said earlier with one of the hosts, I'm originally from just outside Boston and going home for the winter, I was able to see the way that all these different fridges within just the city of Boston were able to help each other, right? So when one of them got two tons of Brussels sprouts, they were able to move some of those around so that each fridge had enough rather than one fridge having a crazy overabundance. Definitely one of the biggest things you can do if you are not a grocery store or restaurant who can give us weekly food donations, if you're a person, we would love for you to look into your community, see if you can band together with existing organization, existing friends and neighbors and create your own fridge. Two tons of Brussels sprouts is a lot of Brussels sprouts, Monisol. That's a lot. That's a lot of Brussels sprouts. Before we finished our conversation, Maya and Kirk wanted to drive home the point that the fridge is not to be thought of as an emergency response. 
it's an ongoing community resource. My ideal world is a, is a world where there are lots of fridges all over the place and people are able to take care of each other and share food all the time. And it's not just in a pandemic um, when a lot of people don't have access to food that this happens. Fridges and mutual aid and like really caring for each other and getting outside of our little bubble and our little homes all by ourselves is really, really important in envisioning sort of a society where you don't have to be scared all the time about whether you're going to make rent and whether you're going to have enough food for your kids. And we know that by sharing and growing collectively and, and caring for each other, that that's the way that happens. We're not going anywhere. No matter what happens in the near future, we plan for the fridge to be there long after we're gone. Maya, Kirk, we can't thank you guys enough for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Maya Gomberg and Kirk Hart. They're part of the Middletown Mutual Aid Collective and organizers of the Middletown Community Fridge, which is at 33 Ferry Street. The Fridge has an Instagram. Find out more information and see pictures of the Fridge at Middletown Community Fridge on Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with the collective, you can email middletownmutualaid at gmail.com. And if you're inspired to start a Fridge in your town or city, Fridge.org is a good place to start. That's F-R-E-E-D-G-E dot org. It's a play on fridge. Fridge, fridge. I like it. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we celebrate a local baker who made it all the way to the season eight finale of Food Network's Kids Baking Championship. So it was pretty amazing. Like, it was just so surreal the whole time. It was like, am I actually standing here, like, seeing these people and, like, all this stuff? You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Did you catch Season 8 of Food Network's Kids Baking Championship last year? Our next guest, 12-year-old Sam Ochiagrosso from West Hartford, was the runner-up. Sam made the rounds on local news, but because the show was airing at the time, he couldn't give too much away about his experience on the Food Network. Now that it's over, and there's no chance for spoilers, Sam can talk about what it was like. It was so fun, like to be out there and just have the experience of like cooking in a professional kitchen, meeting all the people. Like that was probably the best part. I have like so many questions for you when it comes to that because I've done Food Network like twenty sometimes now, and every time I do Food Network or do a show, they do things on purpose to make things break or make things not work, just to see how you handle it. Mm-hmm. Is anything fishy going on your episode? No, there was nothing. It was all very natural. There wasn't. It was just go with the flow. They made my blender not work. They, I kept unplugging it on uh, purpose. <laughs> uh, how long have you been baking now, man? I started baking around like seven, I would say, probably about that six or seven. You enjoy doing cakes. Is that right? Yeah, cakes are probably one of my favorite things. I like the way they come together at the end, like all the components, and they come together to look really pretty. What got you into baking? Was it something you did with your family, like with your parents, or was it just, hey, I mean, I'm a kid. I like cake. My family bakes a lot, and so that helps. But also, like, it just, it's very appealing. All that, like, it's very, I don't know, kind of, like, complicated. That's why it's fun. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of measuring involved in it. And yeah. as a chef, I'm not much of a measurer. <laughs> so you see the tryouts coming up. You see they're taking auditions for Food Network. I mean, I'm guessing your parents found it, or did you find the auditions when you were online, maybe? How did that happen? My mom, she found the audition for Master Chef Junior, and she asked me if, like, that's something I'd be interested in. 
But then I, you know, was wondering, I'd always watched the Baking Championship, and I was wondering if there was auditions for that, too. Like, at the same time, she said there was. So we just tried it. That's awesome. That's great, man. So Sam, he's 12 years old. He's in the seventh grade. He's a student at the Hartford Magnet Trinity College Academy. He's at Sam Bakes the Cakes on Instagram. Yep. And it's fun to see. I think it's great when I see anyone, any younger people who are getting into food. It kind of makes me feel great as a chef for 20-some years. Uh, with food for you, does when you're baking in a kitchen, do you feel, is it like stressful to you? Is it fun to you? What do you feel when you're baking? Well, in a home setting, at least, it's really fun to bake, you know, just to watch everything come together is the best part. That's my probably my favorite part, baking. Like when you like mix cookie dough and then you bake it, and it turns into something different. Here's my problem, Sam. I'll be making cookie dough and then I'll eat half of it before I actually cook it. Yeah. That's the, my problem. That's, yeah, that's pretty common for me too <laughs> yeah that's an issue do you do a lot of the baking at your house for holidays or for thanksgiving because here's a problem thanksgiving time my family wants me to make pies and cakes and that's the food they think of and um, that's not really what i do mm-hmm. I'll, I'll fry a turkey for you but it's tough to bake cakes and pies do you do it during the holidays for the holidays i make a lot of like cookies usually that's people sing with my family at least at the dinner table like after we always have like holiday cookies you know like so like molasses cookies sugar cookies that kind of stuff I want to go back to the audition process for the show because I think it's really interesting to see the difference and kind of how it is for you or for anyone who's ever done it before. You see the audition, you fill out the forms, the mountain of paperwork you have to fill out. <laughs> do you get a call back in person or do you have to do it on camera or how does that work for you? So after like it's like a process where it's, you know, like you send in pictures and tell you to make stuff. They just look, I guess. And then I think it was like 14 bakers. They invite you out. Then they, you know, do like this boot camp process and see like, you know, who's the best. And then I think two people they send they send home and then the rest of it, oh, you go on the show and then the whole process from there. Oh, that's cool. Now, were you guys in New York or were you in L.A.? It was in L.A. the first time. Uh-huh. Well, actually, all times. Yeah, they do a lot of the shooting out there, which is pretty fun. I'm guessing your mom or your dad went with you? Yeah, actually, both my parents came with me. Sure. I would have done the same thing if my kid was going on that. I'd be like, hey, trip to L.A., let's go. We all got to go. <laughs> Why not? When you walked in into you see kind of the soundstage that you walk in on to shoot the set uh, that you're working on, was that a little intimidating? Just seeing all the lights and there's cameras everywhere. I know that there's so many people who run around with cameras in your face mm-hmm. and getting up close to what you're doing and getting in the way. Uh, how did that make your baking process different than what you do at home? It was a lot different because like I'd always watch the show, and so like with the, with the show, you never see the cameras or the lights or anything. And when you get there, it's like it's not it's so much bigger. And like at home, you just you're doing your own thing. If you mess up, like it's all right, just make something else. But you got to be on your yeah, you got to be you know on your game on the show. That's very very true. That's very you only get one shot at it. There's no there's no do overs. Exactly. <laughs> You got a chance to hang out with on the show with uh, Duff Goldman, a really sweetheart of a human being, the aka the Ace of Cakes. How was that? Did you, you a little starstruck by him? Yeah, it was. It was pretty amazing. Like it was just so surreal the whole time. It was like, am I actually standing here, like seeing these people and like all this stuff? Did he give you any cake decorating tips or any tips you could bake with? Um, yeah, a few times I think there was like a few things, you know, like I can't remember exactly, but a couple of times probably there was, you know, some tips like that when he was like showing a demonstration for like the shag cake, you know, like how to like hold, you know, that specific tip and everything. You know, one of the things I've always wondered when it comes to that show, you see so many younger people on it. How messy are you? Like, I mean, because some things are timed, you got to go fast, but you still kind of want to keep things organized. Is it just a mess everywhere? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it just depends because some of the bakers were like they were clean, and then but personally, I was pretty messy because it, it was a big station, so like I could just like make a mess in one part, baking the cake, and then just move over to the other part to frost it. 
just kind of leaving it. <laughs> That's great. You probably shouldn't do that at your own house, though. No, I, I kind of clean as I go when I bake at the house. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the best way to do it. What was your favorite challenge? Probably the ice cream cone cupcakes because we just like had to make them, but we had freedom of like what what flavor we had to make, and so like it kind of like there's a lot of creativity we could express on that. And did any of the competitions make you nervous? Like that you were like, uh oh, this is gonna be a tough one. I was nervous in the finale because I never really made a cake that looked like a fruit or anything like that. That was probably the most nervous. You know, listen, you're going to get nervous sometimes. That's the way it goes. But that's what makes you better. What was uh, some ingredients maybe during the competition that you saw for the very first time? You were like, what on earth is this? So one thing I remember really well was, I don't know how you pronounce it, Jandua, Jandua, like, like oh, the chocolate oh, 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 right, paste, right, right, right. you know what I'm saying? Like, I never seen that. It was like a block. and It sounded like pretty cool. I, I thought it would be tasty, but I never used it. Yeah, I always say when you do competitions, if you, if you don't use that stuff every day on a daily basis, stay as far away from it as humanly possible. Now is not yeah, the time on a competition to use something you've never used before. It was pretty interesting. It's like to see like like all the variety of stuff, like stuff I would never like get like invert sugar, yeah. like in glucose syrup and like there's saffron even like. Oh, yeah. Those are things I would never see, but that's pretty cool to see all the ingredients. Well, you got to do it now. Saffron's fantastic in cakes. I should try it sometime. Absolutely. What was something you think you learned last year that you've been using in your baking ever since? I learned like how to bake with like the essence, I guess, of speed a little more because like before I'd always been kind of slow. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not fast. Like I don't have to rush, but I kind of figured out like the best way to like time it like so when your cake's in the oven, make your frosting. And so just to kind of get it all so you don't have to take hours. You're getting that no wasted movement going on. That's the key thing there. <laughs> for exactly. sure. I understand that. Do you have any aspirations of becoming a professional baker? And you also sell your baked goods, don't you? Mm -hmm. During the holidays, I, I, I sold a lot of cookies. It was crazy, like how many different people ordered them. Like I shipped, I think as far as Utah. Wow, amazing. how about that? Yeah, it was cool. I, I could not do that all year round, though. It's like exhausting to do that. But it's fun <laughs> to do it, like in that short holiday period. And you can people can see that Sam bakes the cakes on Instagram. So check them out there for <laughs> sure. And I've seen some of the stuff you've done on with my friends over at Better Connecticut and, and the pieces like that. And you've done some Zoom decorating cakes as well online. That's a little bit difficult, isn't it? Like it's more difficult than in person. It's kind of hard for like, you can't like show people because like they can't move. Like they're fixed on a screen. Like they're fixed looking at whatever like your camera's looking at. Like so like they can't move around or look at the, you know, their specs. And yeah, here's a tip for you. Next time you do it, use two cameras. That's what I've always done. Oh yeah. You take yeah. one and put it above it so it's looking down and one's on the mm -hmm. side and you just call into the zoom twice. It works great. And then people are like, oh, this is amazing. This is, how is this guy so great? That's what you got to do next for sure. What about culinary school? Any thoughts of that? I think it would be pretty neat to go to culinary school because like there's definitely a lot I still have to learn about baking. Like I'm, I'm not really a master of anything, but you know, I know like my general way around like cakes and that kind of stuff, but more advanced things, I, I definitely would like to learn all that. My recommendation is the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. That's yeah, awesome. I've heard a, lot of, heard a lot of great things about that culinary school. That's where I graduated from. That's why. <laughs> Sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. Let's talk about bread baking for a second. Are you big into baking bread? Yeah, like more recently, I've been baking a lot of bread. Like I'm actually making a loaf of sourdough right now. Nice. Are you letting that sour kind of age and then going to reuse yeah, it later? Yeah, that's happening. But it's I think it's kind of fun to bake bread because you don't really have to decorate it. Like it's just like the whole process. Like <laughs> I like decorating, but I probably actually enjoy like mixing the batter and that kind of stuff more. So yeah. it's really fun to do bread. It's not too sweet, and you know, it's like I'm not saying you can eat like a ton of it like you would like a normal dinner, but it's just like. You, say, well, you can like bake it more often than cake. 
Like you can't eat cake. It's delicious. And it ha- kind of has a mind of its own, right? Oh, yes. I remember working with old bakers back in the day and they would have their sours in the walk-in or in the dry storage area and they would just call it feeding the beast and they would get there early in the morning to feed the sour. And I can imagine at your house, your parents are probably yelling at you, Sam, what is this bucket of stuff over here? Yeah, actually, my dad mentioned that this morning. He actually, like, I had like a thing of sourdough starter in the fridge. They all think I'm crazy for getting up early to feed it and the whole process with that. That makes you so happy that you know what I'm talking about. That's great. <laughs> I love it. I love it. How many breads have you baked now? You've done a sourdough. What else have you done? Um, I've done sourdough. I also do like a lot of cinnamon rolls. Like that was one of the things mm-hmm. I had on my holiday menu. Those are really fun to make. Hey, another bread is always fun to do too. I thought was really rewarding was to try a brioche. That's a great one to do. Oh yeah, I tried that too. I failed my first couple of times, but then after that, I got it down, and it was. Oh, you're, you're supposed to fail. It's okay. Yeah, you get better exactly. at it. That's what makes you get better. So one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you about your experience and your baking is because 2020 wasn't like such a great year for a lot of people. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, but something wonderful happened to you in 2020. I mean, you called it, you know, your time of Food Network, the journey of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I mean, the joy you got of baking brought a lot of other people joy as well. So we want to celebrate that, right? Yeah, definitely. It's nice to be able to like for some people just to watch and like forget the pandemic for a little bit. Well, listen, Sam, we appreciate you. I can't wait to see what your baking turns up next. And I'm hoping maybe we'll see you do some more things in the future. It'd be fun to see a great Connecticut kid doing some more baking on television. Yeah, it would be. I'd be completely, you know, happy to do anything else. Like, it was really fun. That was kid baker Sam Grosso of West Hartford. He was the runner-up on Season 8 of Food Network's Kids Baking Championship. See what Sam's cooking on his Instagram at SamBakesTheCakes. You better watch out, Plum. If you end up competing on a show with Sam one day, he just might win. If it's a baking show, Sam will most definitely win. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyenakin and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Zakaina Collier and Joseph Vasquez. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week. Mm-hmm.